0: What up, guys and girls? It's Bobby and Sean, coming to you. Uh, still separated? I think Sean, you're back in the back in home in the city, aren't you?
1: No, I'm still in Colorado. I take a uh, red eye tonight, and I'll get in early tomorrow morning. When does school start for you? Starts on Tuesday. I have another day of welcome back to the second semester of law school, where they'll go over like mental health stuff. And I think some ideas for what the summer job search might look like. But they've had us doing a a bunch of modules on like a website called Open Minded where we have to go through and it's kind of like a self-reflection realization thing. My website didn't work. So that's only what I'm guessing based on the name of the website. Wait, you're being serious? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, during the first semester, we met probably three times a month, uh, mandatory sessions during lunch once a week where we talked about anything from resiliency, uh, which they actually used the Army's resiliency slide, which made me just super happy because people look at it and it's it's the most like HUA, Army Strong type motivational poster and everyone's looking around like, wow, it's really... It's really hardcore. I'm sitting there like, oh my God. Like, I hated the monthly, just sign your name next to this training that you had to go and do because it's mandatory for the company because someone from division put out 75 weeks worth of training that fits, you know, within that year long uh, training schedule. So, yeah, I had some fun. I think law school in general is trying to tone down the stress it's putting on students because there's been a lot of articles and Pretty famously, a lawyer came out, I think, within the last couple years and wrote a big article about how he's dealt with depression because of the rigors of his specific law that he practices and then how his firm has been really welcoming and having that dialogue and realizing that more lawyers are that depressed. They say that being in the law profession is one of the most depressing jobs you can have. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I, I still don't see how that's possible because if you're doing what makes you happy and you followed the type of law you really wanted to pursue, it's just one of those difficult things. It's like saying that once you got to Ranger Regiment you were depressed. I mean, that, if that's what you wanted to be and that's where you wanted to serve once you get there, it's I mean, it's pretty open as far as what the standards are. So it for me it's a little confusing how people put themselves on this trajectory. And then after years and years of practicing it, they finally get there and their head game is all messed up. It's it's one of those things you should have probably realized this before you assigned your name on the dotted line.
0: Yeah, but I think a lot of, I mean, that's an issue of, like medicine too. Uh, I know that dentists are like the highest suicide rates out of any like profession, I want to say. Actually, I don't know like the data, but I know like as far as dentists go, dentists amongst like healthcare workers are like the highest rate of suicides. And you think like dentists have a pretty good life because, I mean, that is the definition of like a lifestyle medicine where you just work nine to five and you just bring home cash, bring home bank as a dentist.
1: Yeah, I think think either spelling people's bad breath might trigger that, or if your uncle constantly reminds you of the movie The Hangover and. Oh, yeah. Dr. Stu. Yeah, I don't know, like, what that,
0: what that is. I know in medicine, like, burnout contributes a lot to it. And I imagine in, in law, burnout contributes a lot to, like, um, to feelings of depression and anxiety and, like, a lot of the psych issues. Just from, like, not, uh, like, being overwhelmed with, like, stress or work and then not being able to, to develop good coping mechanisms. Rocky, shut up. Develop good co- coping mechanisms. Um, I'm sure I'll contribute to it and I'm I'm sure there's a lot of pressure especially like in a law office or a firm like having a lot of pressure put on you by like um, The partners to like, you know win cases make money for the firm and all the other stuff So I'm sure there's like a lot of like Reasons why it's probably not as fulfilling as people imagine it to be
1: I think there are two reasons and you brought it up with the stressors the first I think would be a hyper-competitive environment all the way mm-hmm. through uh, your high school, then your undergrad, then your law school, because for the most part, at every single points in uh, you know that student's career, they have been probably the number one through number 10 ranked student in their entire student body. And then when they get to places where all of a sudden they aren't pulling in straight A's, mm-hmm. it's really overwhelming for them because for the longest time they've associated success with some grade and, and not having any real practical experience outside of school, yeah. if your grades define you, then it's really hard to overcome that sudden gut-wrenching feeling of I now have less than a 4.0. And then when you mm. get to the law firms, because a lot of times these firms will go and promote themselves on the campuses as we only take people with a 3.6 or above. And, and uh, you hate to see that because that is like the top 3% of a law school, that's incredibly hard to get. And if you want to pull in two hundred plus thousand dollars a year, that's what you have to do. And if you have kind of one bad semester, it's going to be really hard to to overcome that, especially with the way that the law school grading works, with the curves that they establish, rather than kind of two plus two is four, everyone got it. Okay, everyone's going to get the A. And then when you get yeah. to a law firm and you come in as that junior associate, if you do go corporate or go to the one of one of the larger firms, you're put on the back burner as far as any kind of i would say professional development goes even though a lot of these firms will talk heavily about the programs that they have but having friends that are there they are put on some medial tasks and it's not until they prove themselves for three to five years are they kind of brought out from that dungeon level they're they're doing assignments on christmas eve and christmas because it is such a bottom line revenue driven Mm -hmm. establishment and organization that it's hard to really see what that law is, you know, going towards because you're just helping out your clients and saving millions of dollars for them in the process, which you might see a small kickback. Um, It's one of the reasons I think when I look at the law that I want to practice, and we've had these conversations too with, you know, your medicine aspirations and where you see yourself as a surgeon. I want to do something because the taxpayers are paying for this. I mean, granted, I I got this through the GI Bill, but I still feel an obligation to serve. And a law degree Mm -hmm. is one of those ones. Besides medicine, I feel like you can really make a larger impact on people's lives. It's one of the reasons I thought about potentially running for office one day. It's just it's a great tool to go and investigate documents and make sure that it's helping out whoever you really want to ensure has some, some prosperity in the future.
0: Yeah. I'd say, like, with law, I feel like there's a lot um, more, or like, an increased potential for, like, high-impact jobs. Whereas, like, in medicine, you don't really have, well, I mean, there are definitely, like, positions that you can get where you're, like, in charge of, like, you know, like, the CDC or doing, like, population health. But a lot of doctors don't really go into medicine to go into population health. But generally speaking, population health is, like, uh, like not worth... They don't pay you with anything. Like make it worth your while, you know. No, and that's that's like one of the, the hard the things. Public health, yeah, and I'm sure it's the same thing with, with law. Like going into like the public uh, like policy law or like and anything like driving like policy, like domestic or foreign policy, is like you don't really get much compensation for it. And then at the end of the day, I think a lot, you know, you want to see some return on your investment in school.
1: No, oh, that's exactly right. You want to be fulfilled with what you're doing, but you want to be. Validated through whatever your grades reflected, and you look at a lot of the top jobs coming out of law school that people go after. A lot of people go after judicial clerkships with, uh, you know, any one of the district or appellate or supreme level uh, justices and judges, and it's a really prestigious job. But you do it for two years. You are you are making very little. Then that usually pays mm-hmm. off because you have been such a high performer up until that point that a corporate uh, position will make itself available for you because now you have these inroads and you've seen how the law is practiced at the point at which it's adjudicated Uh, whether it's you know and you look at the district courts they've got to see cases that range from civil to criminal and you know white collar blue collar so you have all this wealth of experience that you're going to bring to an organization I mean that's just one of them I know for me my first semester did not wind up at all like I hoped it would, and I mm-hmm. I spent more time reading and more time taking notes, and I think probably studying how I thought I should have after taking eight years off from undergrad, and it didn't pan out the way um, that I expected, and I have, I have to make some pretty big adjustments in order to be more successful for my second semester, which, you know, I, I don't know how you felt your first semester in, in med school, but, you know, it's oh, kind yeah. of... It's like a little depressing, like, holy shit, I just put all this effort in and now you see your grades come back and it's just, I thought I stacked up a little higher against my peers.
0: Yeah, I definitely had like the same, <coughs> kind of the
1: same uh, issue
0: in my first semester because I had taken, well, like four and a half, almost five years off between undergrad and med school. And like, you know, how I learned in, at West Point is completely different from how I learned here in med school. Like uh, like uh, like in at West Point, like I'll be honest, like some of the classes were hard, but it wasn't like hard, hard. If that makes sense, like it does. I probably looking back on it, I had like not the best like study habits. I just was able to rely more so on like my, you know, baseline intelligence, a baseline like memorization ability versus actually like putting in work to like develop good studying habits and good um like routines to support you know being a efficient learner so like in med school the first semester i was like i took the first semester now just to figure out like how i actually learned like what is the right way to for me to teach myself and how to learn because i had like no idea like west point all i did was just like read the book once or like read a chapter and like outline the chapter and that was all i had to do and then i was done like didn't have to like go back through my notes and have to do like flashcards, didn't have to do anything like alternative study methods. Whereas in med school I kind of learned um like how I study the way I study in like ways that I need to, you know, work on it. It's so, like my first semester and I think <laughs> in med school especially the first semester was kinda of, like an easy semester in terms of like it's a lot of like uh like biology and chemistry and like kind of genetics, like kind of like this stuff that you should have gone over in undergrad. So at least with my med school, they structure the curriculum so that the first semester is a little bit of a lighter curriculum where you, it's like stuff that you should have learned already. But they're just going over again just to like reinforce how you study. So I don't think my grades were that bad. And I actually can't remember kind of like how my grades went that first semester, but I think I was either average or slightly above average, but that, that's like my entire med school uh like my entire med school academics was like like half a standard deviation above the mean is kind of like where i sat and i like applied for everything like for my standard for my boards i was about a half standard deviation standard deviation above the mean and then in, in my in my med school class and my academics i was always about half a standard deviation above the mean so that was like i don't know it just worked out for me that way but the first semester was definitely rough coming from you know coming from regiment and then like, being told, like, you know, being very task-driven, like, you have to do this by this time, you know, have suspension dates, and then going, like, to school, and then there's no one telling you that you need to, like, st- read this by this date, or study this for, and understand this by this date. It's like, you just have to be, you know, you're an adult, you have to be an adult learner, so you have to be able to prepare yourself uh, mentally and, you know, academically to be able to take the test at the end of the, after, after, after a month, take the test, so... It's like a lot of, like, um, being a, a mature, like, adult and being able to to learn and teach yourself and being disciplined enough to put in the time to learn
1: on the front end. Yeah, and just not not from, from learning it, too, but applying it. And for all of those individuals out there that are thinking about it, you know, going to, to law school or med school, hit us up. I'll, I'll be happy to talk about it. So my grades for this semester, I got Bs and B-minuses. And law school is all based on a curve where the top – you know, per 100 students, only about three might get A pluses, like, you know, three to 10 might get A's, and then it breaks it down. So if you're getting B's and B minuses, you're typically in the the bottom half, bottom third of a class, which is an awful place to be in, especially if you're coming from the military, where if you're successful and very performance driven, you find yourself either being the individual that's doing the briefs, coming up with the plans. And the big thing that I have to adjust to now, looking at second semester, is my undergrad courses were very math heavy with economics. And so Mm -hmm. when a teacher gave a test, if it was game theory or econometrics or stats 1 through 55, he could just make the test, he or she could just make the test that much more difficult so that the test itself had some sort of self-applied curve where you're definitely not going to know something. A couple students might. But in general, the grades will fall out as they will, and there, there will be a general equal number of A's, B's, C's, D's, and a couple you know, flat-out failures. Whereas law school, you know, they put a test in front of you, and in very you know, simple kind of terms, it's like looking at a Christmas tree, and you see the ornaments that you put up, and everyone's generally going to see the exact same thing. Yep, that's a tree. Yep, it's got a star on top. Yep, uh, that's a couple Santa Clauses I see, but where people make up and really separate themselves from their peers is how well they can write about it. And coming from the military, where other than MDMP, which I absolutely hated, but that idea of red hat versus blue hat, when you get to whatever step it is where you, you start playing devil's advocate and going back and forth with somebody, you have to be able to execute that on these papers where you know that when you're reading it this contract is void for indefiniteness okay that's great like I've already told you what the conclusion is I've identified what the issue is the rule is that you know it, it's it doesn't list a quantity term boom I'm done well, you're not done in law school, because in law school then they expect you to go deeper into analysis. And that was really hard for me, and it still is hard for me, and I've got to reach out with some of my friends and improve my study habits through actually writing out prompts and going through this IRAC format that they've got. Because Mm -hmm. what they want to see is you have to say, okay, you know, Person A would argue that this is void because of these reasons. It is void. However, one could make an argument on the other side for a number of other possibilities that would make now this contract enforceable and then you kind of have to go through each one of those separate arguments and you still have to go back and forth and back and forth and the deeper that you get and the more articulate you are in your writing and the better writer you are which is why so many people coming into law school or english majors or have some paralegal work before they got to law school is they understand that and they know how to write about it i on the other hand i'm coming from the army where it's like i'm going to write an op board or I'm going to brief an opboard. There's not really much back and forth. It's just I'm telling you the bottom line, what right. the answer is. And and yeah, law yeah, school so is different. Yeah, much different like form of writing. That it's like any skill you got to like put it, get better at the skill. <laughs> and the worst part is you walk out of these exams, and I, I've learned a ton from my first semester. I feel I could sit down and in my study groups that I had, I had no problem talking, uh, through you know, a, a summary of what that course had gotten to by whatever week we were in. I had no problem mm-hmm. regurgitating, and this is the rule, and this is why it applies to this situation. Where I really struggled with was thinking why I got to that conclusion. And in my head, I had done it naturally, but I have to put mm-hmm. that on paper. Otherwise, yeah, the teacher just like looks at it and so. goes, you got a 50% chance of saying whether person A, the plaintiff, is going to succeed, because of you know, this injury was a proximate cause of the defendant's negligence or you know, it's not. And, and it seems really cut and dry a lot of times, but the, the best people are the ones that go through hypotheticals and are asking the questions. So I'm looking forward to next semester because there's, it's just such a, an awesome pool of knowledge in my classmates and then also the courses are really interesting. But God, that was a, a kick to the nuts. I think it was yesterday that, that I finally got my grades, especially now applying to a bunch of internships from mm-hmm. uh, public interest to that, that corporate route, which is very difficult to get as a 1L anyway. But then when you see your GPA, you're like, I don't even know why I bothered. Now I'm going to have to write them and email them that uh, this is my GPA, and uh, RLTW is not going to get me that position anymore.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's all like a big learning process to get better over time, too. I mean, like anything, you're not going to be awesome at the first thing you do, but it's like what you, how you approach the obstacle, whether you overcome it or you succumb to it, it's kind of like, you know, the challenge from
1: that part. That's exactly what it is. And I've talked to some of my mentors who have gone through law school. Um, One of them was my my first company commander. And he said first semester was really difficult, but you're going to see individuals that did really well that first semester. And then... Mm -hmm they don't change their studying habits because they think whatever they did was appropriate enough to get that grade. And then all of a sudden, that same effort of work will not be enough for the new classes because the classes will be different and they might Mm -hmm. have a different grading requirement. What I'm looking forward to the most in this next semester is a couple of my classes don't come down to just one test. I wish in the first uh, semester i had had a couple midterms or a couple more subs substantial writing assignments because Mm -hmm. we had a couple writing assignments that I did well on, like I think better than most of my peers just based on the conversations we had. But then when it came down to actually applying it on a written exam with you know one to five essay questions and then you see your grades come back you're like I wish I could have made these adjustments earlier in the semester because I think I would have seen a much different and more successful outcome and Mm -hmm. next semester they're going to change that a little bit with just based on the classes but it's really hard when you get one time to to really prove yourself it's kind of like you know you show up to to take the RPFT you know what's on the test or you think you do and then you, you just don't do as well as you had hoped it's one of those you have to be resilient and really Step yeah. back, which oh my god, that's why they had those classes for us this semester. It all makes sense now. It's all come together. It was for me. They were doing it for me.
0: But yeah, that's like, uh, yeah, like the the overcoming challenges and w- becoming better based on what has happened in the past. Yeah, I was in, in medicine. I was actually I just put up all my grades, and I to make you feel if it makes you feel any better, I was like a B like
1: probably average like a b b plus through my first two years of med school yeah and it's like i mean i didn't do that great in undergrad but like when you get b's and b pluses you're just sitting there wondering what like i could have sworn i was smarter than these people like yeah i guess i mean i mean very good looking but i thought that would translate a little bit more to grades you know
0: But uh, but uh, as uh, as far as med school goes, we don't have like a curve where you know it's more objective than probably you guys have. So like your grade's kind of like a grade, and like you're either right or wrong. So like but but they at least send out the averages. And if I remember correctly, I was about like either at the mean or like like I said like a half standard deviation above the mean. So in my mind, I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, be.
1: <laughs> I that's all I really want to do. I've I <laughs> I don't want to be like, below average, if I am slightly above average, like, that works, that checks you out. I'm, oh, yeah. I, I still feel, and it's in the last 24 hours, I've had, like, a really wide range of emotions. And, mm-hmm. like, sometimes you sit there and I you, you feel sorry for yourself, thinking, okay, they didn't understand what I wrote. I clearly got all the issues, or I spotted all the issues, but I need to work on myself. I have to acknowledge that... I yeah, am not yeah, shortcomings. As, yeah, that I have shortcomings and the other one is like even with these shortcomings, I know this next semester I'm gonna work my ass off again. I, I'm still gonna mm-hmm. devote such a large time to understanding the law and it's gonna be a lot of fun and that I asked for this and I volunteered for it. But there are so many other people that you know just in your daily life you'll come across whether it you know it's especially in New York, there's such a large homeless community. It's like you know what I'm not in that bad of a position where I'm oh, privileged yeah. enough to go to law school. I'm sure if this guy wanted to switch with me, he would in a heartbeat just for these lousy grades. And and kind of that the perspective is really what motivates me and makes me still have a positive outlook on this. Because at the end of the day, even if I were to continue with these grades, which I won't um, because I'm, I'm going to make sure I've already identified some of the places I need to adjust. At the end of the day, I'm still going to have the opportunity to graduate, and I'm still going to have mm-hmm. the opportunity to do something with this degree, whether or not it brings in the revenue that I was hoping it would or generate. But at the end of the day, I can still make a difference. And and it's, if people can't get over shortcomings, then you know I think that's that's a bigger problem. I think someone on the game last night i think it was the baltimore game said like tough times don't last tough people do yeah and that was really timely because you know it, it came a couple hours after i got this this transcript back i was like that's a that's a good point thank you you know defensive end who who just mic'd up and you know said that Hmm. yeah and i think it's also kind of
0: uh like we talked about with like identities, not like hinging your identity on one hat and having more than one hat. I think like how you're saying about like volunteering with um, like the other veterans groups. I'm, I think that um, definitely helps kind of stabilize you and kind of gives you you know an outlet for blowing like letting some of that stress go, or you kind of like you know take a step back and see like oh yeah, I'm doing something very positive or helping somebody else out. So, so I'm not like fully focus on on my studying and there's other ways that I can you know be uh, like positive and and help somebody else out
1: well that's what my internships too are kind of gearing up towards this summer one of the things I looked into was uh, safe passages which allows law students whether they are 1Ls or 2Ls to go and help represent individuals who whose parents have been deported um Mm -hmm. or who came here illegally and have court dates and they don't have representation and so it's going to bat and going to court for them Mm -hmm. and learning much more about the immigration process i know we had a podcast i think this summer where i kind of ran down exactly what uh, the immigration policy is in the united states and some of the things with uh, the attorney general how he is trying to change the language in, in order to make it a little bit more difficult, but there's still thousands of individuals that have to go to court every year that don't know the laws or mm-hmm. that have individuals that aren't willing to go and go out on a limb to make sure that they can enjoy the American Dream. whether your politics are they shouldn't be here or they should be here and allowed to be here at the end of the day these are still human beings and you right. know law is one of those things that Americans should not turn a blind eye to regardless of your political affiliation.
0: Yeah, and but, but I think people, like, get tied up and, or, you know, get, like, a little emotional about these kind of topics, but at the end of the day, like, by, you know, by God, like, wh- whatever is grace, God's grace, whatever you want to call it, like, we were born in America to legal, you know, legal citizens, and we were born legally. But, like, so you could say that, you know, we won, like, the the cosmic lottery. I've I've heard people say that before, like, we we won we won the cosmic lottery by
1: being born in America to middle class parents. <laughs> oh, absolutely! To to being born to middle class parents, to being born into a family that was fortunate enough at whatever time in history that they decided to become trailblazers and immigrate to America, had an opportunity to become citizens and then have taken advantage of the generosity of this country to make yeah. an impact or leave an impact through future generations. I I think it's it's in Incredible, like words can't generate enough gratitude for these previous Americans mm-hmm. and family members who really risked everything to come here. And then,
0: yeah.
1: you know, to see, oh, they came here and they were living out of a truck, or, you know, they faced massive discrimination and yeah. bigotry. And then all of a sudden, a couple of generations later, like, it's just incredible how America changes yeah. based on the immigrants yeah. that come here.
0: Yeah, I I love how like Joe Rogan does like this bit. I, don't, I don't like some of his podcasts where he talks about like something pretty similar. He's like, "You're like two generations ago. Your parent, like your grandparents, are fucking savages. They were they didn't have electricity. They lived like you know like they lived in like filth and squalor. Like two generations later, you forget where you came from, and then you forget. You think that you like you're an American, so you you belong here. Whereas, you know these immigrants coming from South America." Or Mexico, who are trying to, you know, have a better life for them and their children and their offspring, you know, we're denying these people like the the, you know, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness.
1: And I think I, one and of I get th- like,
0: like you know, I get the whole idea that you know, as a white, you know, uh, it was like you know, you're like direct competition is the the legal Mexican who is going to work under the table and you know, performs better than you are. And works for cheaper than you do like you can make i can i can empathize with that position but at the same time though like that's a game that you're in like you have to fight like you have to play the game you can't just
1: blame the opponent for being better than you no and it's one of the things that people really forget about especially with the long history of discrimination with different like ethnic minorities Mm -hmm. and um like the, the very small one would be for like Italians and Irishmen. Like when they came mm-hmm. here in the early mm-hmm. 1900s, you know, they had a different accent. They had, you know, they were Catholics in a world of Protestants. Yeah. Uh, they weren't given jobs. A- and this is yeah. nothing compared to what like underrepresented minorities face, you know, even in the mid 1900s to, to current day uh, with uh, job and, uh, jobs and employment numbers. But, you know, back then it used to be, oh, you were Italian, you're not getting this job up in Philly. Like, no way. And so for people 50, 60 years later to forget that their family came here, probably unless they came from Britain, not being able to speak English, the first generation of immigrants from South America are not going to have that privilege if they're fleeing mass poverty or genocide Mm -hmm. or gang culture to say, you know what, let me take another year, I'm going to get my Rosetta Stone out, I'm going to learn English before I come here because... This bitch at Starbucks is gonna get really upset uh, if I don't know how to order correctly. Like, I think that is mm-hmm, one of the most mm-hmm. ignorant ways that you can look at immigrants, that all of a sudden they have to be able to assimilate in less than one generation spending the majority of their life in a in a location that you would never even think of going to, even if you were a helpful individual and wanted to volunteer for your spring break, you would never go to that region of the world because it's not Instagrammable enough. You know, like yeah. that that kind of culture that America has right now is really what's sad, especially when you look at the worldview, because I think we can also transition now to kind of a discussion on the Middle East. That has left the last two decades, it, it's changed the way that our generation will be viewed by the world for the next fifty to sixty years, or the rest of our lives. You know, the greatest generation of Americans, World War II, they went and they liberated against you know uh, tyrannical empires that did nothing but bring bloodshed and misfortune on the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's now it's like okay, the America that they stood for is that the same one that we've been representing? Because essentially, we've gone to one region of the world that for Thousands of years, had no idea who we were, and the only impact now that we've really left on them is one of bloodshed and tyranny. And it's, it's you know, I don't at all agree with Iran's politics and how they do things, because I think they're a terrible country. But you could also see if, if you've grown up kind of like you said, that cosmic ladder. If you've grown up in the Middle East or you're Iranian, it's probably not unlikely that you're going to harbor some uh, right. poor feelings about our country
0: hmm well that's like uh what the saying is is like hard times make hard men and hard men make easy times and then easy times make weak men and the whole cycle repeats itself and then weak men make like weak men make hard times or something like that so i think it's like all cyclical so you can call, go back to like the world war Two. like these are hard men who made you know good times and they they brought the good times to america and now it's kind of the pendulum swinging back the other way where i mean like this is kind of like broad strokes. I'm not saying that America is like going into decline or whatever, you know, but it's kind of like how the pendulum swinging back where people are now becoming not as, you know, not as resilient as maybe back then things are getting harder. And then it's reflected in like, kind of
1: like the issues facing our generations now. Well, yeah, the real toughness and, and how you, how you look at problems. Like, is that really a problem? I mean, like, you know, in, because America is so financially well off compared to the rest of the world and because of our education yeah. levels, the things that we can concern ourselves with as a country are you know our freedom of speech and um, is our language offensive to small communities within the United States and their progression towards that happiness and freedom and you know liberty and everything else that is, is defined by our Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Now, if you go to another country that doesn't have our economic prosperity, doesn't have our levels of freedom of speech, if you were to try to make that argument there, you'd be slapped in the face because like there's real challenges, whether it's water mm-hmm. crises or food shortages or disease. You, you, can't, you can't have those. And I don't think America is ever going to get to the point where we're going to revert back to this like, hyper-masculine, very tough, rugged uh, exterior that we had through like the Manifest Destiny... Generations, and then World War One and the uh, Great Depression, but I think there will be kind of a reckoning of we still have to exhibit some values and and some ways. And I think it's one of the reasons why our politics is now so split down the middle. Because you look at you know Soleimani being killed a week and a half ago. The guy was responsible for tons of attacks in Iraq on a ton of civilians, on a yeah, ton like of thousands. U.S. service members. Yeah. Thousands of individuals have been affected, whether they lost their lives or they were seriously maimed. The guy is a bad guy. So from the perspective of you know, kind of that tough American, it's like, well, if we have an opportunity to, to take him out, you take that opportunity. Well, if mm-hmm. you have someone else on the other side now that's like, well, no, we're not that tough, we should also be aware of the sovereignty of Iraq. Well, now you're making the argument that we could have probably done this through some sort of diplomatic channels, but then, you know, again, that counterargument is uh, to what extent do we stop going the diplomacy route and just say someone has to make the tough decision, someone is going to die, whether it's an American or someone who's not American, I think the populations need to be aware of that decision. And um, it was, I think, Senator Cotton um, and I think, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he was an army ranger, um, and he spent time in Iraq, and he said that from the perspective of a soldier, the the idea of an imminent attack looks way different than a politician, and it's completely true, and individuals on CNN and Fox can go back and forth and argue as much as they want, but at the end of the day, if you've got a loved one there, whether or not we knew, based on what the Secretary of State and President said about these imminent attacks on embassies or bases, like you really can't argue that their happiness right. could somehow be impacted if we don't take action. So it, it's like yeah. this it's this pendulum that you talked about that we can't really get over um, and, and can't get beyond because I think we're in a very privileged state as Americans being able to have these very broad and general opinions on the world.
0: Oh, yeah. One of my favorite like pastimes is uh, I follow NPR on Facebook. So one of my favorite pastimes is just to read the comments on NPR articles. I'm like, this is just one big giant echo chamber where everyone talks about like, I don't trust the president. Like, why won't he tell us why? Like, what attack there was gonna be? Like, why can't he tell? Like, reveal the sources that you know he, that Americans were in danger. Like, we don't trust the president. I was like, why does that matter? <laughs> you, like, what what is your bitching and moaning gonna do about the situation
1: at hand? Right. No, it, it's not only that. It's not. It's not just what is your bitching and moaning going to do, but it's somehow. Why do you think you're owed an explanation?
0: Yeah. E- like every
1: single one of these sources that was used to to vet any information that came in and any intelligence gathering that we did was only for the individuals that are in that region or for the individuals mm-hmm. that would be potentially be harmed by a homeland attack. Yeah. You, like don't, have a top yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't have top a security clearance. Yeah. Literally top secret. <laughs> I mean, h- how many times when you were deployed the first time in a conventional unit? Uh, did you sit there and go, well, how do we get this information? How do they know that I have to go uh, and interdict, you know, along this route in in southern Afghanistan? And then all of a sudden, you you get to a regiment, you're like, oh, now I see where we get this information. But there's like, that you were vetted before you even got your clearance, before you went and got a top secret. So for Americans to generally sit there and go, I don't trust him, so therefore he has to tell me everything, it's like, well, why? Who are you? Yeah. you drive a Prius? Thank you. Like, I- I'm not yeah. telling you where we got this intelligence from.
0: Yeah, and my other favorite thing is like uh, the fact that you know, like 99.9 percent of Americans probably don't know anything about like Middle Eastern like politics or regional politics or even international relations or international affairs. Like, like uh, what was it? Like, I remember seeing something that like 20 percent like of people could even point to, I- to Iran on a map. Like, 75 percent of Americans don't even know where Iran is in the world. So I was like, you know there's people are put i I forget where it was where I saw it, but like people had like putting it out in Africa and South America where where they thought Iran was, and I was like, Jesus
1: Christ, like right it's really bad, and just ignorance it's it's straight ignorance, it's really embarrassing that like the schools aren't teaching you know geography to the level they were, but it, it goes beyond that because people thought the Taliban. Were responsible for 9-11, not al-Qaeda. People don't know, you know, is Iran Shia or Sunni? Is al-Qaeda Shia or Sunni? Is ISIS Shia or Sunni? And so within this whole region, there is a bunch of turmoil just in the middle of, you know, these, these uh, Muslim factions all celebrating Islam. You know, and then mm-hmm. it just taking it to a different level of violence uh, when they have their disagreements based on, you know, that that regional power play. And and people you know, don't get that. And so if they don't understand like who Osama like bin context. Laden was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why the hell should they understand who Qasem Soleimani is? Yeah. Or Hondas Yeah. I
0: actually had an argument with Christina the other night about this cuz she was so livid about like Trump's a fucking asshole, like why did he kill this guy? And I was like, do you understand who this guy is? Like he's a bad guy. Like you can't even argue the fact that this was a good guy. Like sure, maybe we could have gone gone a different route but like i'm not gonna sit here and argue the fact that this guy needed to die (laughs) like he probably saved like thousands more lives and and prevented a lot more like like bloodshed and and terror amongst not even just the
1: iranians but iraqis and like people in the area but how influential he was too that he's not going to be easily replaced because he has been the go-to guy now for two decades yeah. Since gaining his position, I, I had the same uh, conversation with my dad, but I had it from a different perspective. Where he was, you know, he was in the military. He's like, "Yeah, the, the guy's bad. You know, take him out." And I tried to have a conversation, and and it mm-hmm. was it like was, was great advocate, just talking yeah. with him. Like, well, w- do we have to go about it this way? Why did we have to make it appear that an American drone took him out? Could we have done this mm-hmm. in a more clandestine manner because we knew where he was? Could we have right. paid a militia to go and do this to cause you know? more uh, strife between Iraq and Iran going back to the to the war in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Is that something we could have done? And then why didn't we? And why do we have to make it seem that if America's threatened and we take out uh, your senior leader in a very violent fashion, well, maybe that will curb any future behavior from Iran? Because then we look and we see their rocket attack. You know, at first, uh, the president came out and was like, listen, they, they purposely missed, although they hit some of, you know, the installation at al-Assad, but... You know, I don't think they wanted bloodshed because they knew that if if President yeah. Trump was so angered by the information that you know Soleimani had been behind some of the embassy uh, mm-hmm. protest, yeah, like riot, well, can you imagine yeah. what had happened if an American had actually been killed? I mean, it would have been awful. And then you have the jet yeah. go down too, a mere like three hours after the rocket oh, attack. Yeah, yeah. Like, Iran's fucked, and and the. They didn't want to release the black boxes and after two days of, you know, international uh, condemnation, they were like, Yeah, we did shoot it down. RB. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I love like the uh and back
0: to like what I was saying about the NPR comments, people were saying like this is what happens when you like play war and stuff. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like they everyone was like blaming like the Americans for like shooting down this or like trying to start something. I'm just like you guys give like the government and like you know like a lot more credit than it's due and then like, it turns out there's some some Iranian like second lieutenant that freaked out, thought it was like a a I don't hit like a like a fighter jet and just shot it down. <laughs> it's like I would hate to be that lieutenant that gets fifteen 6 Like that'd be a terrible fifteen six. 'Cause you know in Iran, if you fail you just get beheaded in public square.
1: <laughs> yeah, or or you just get highly qualified in your OER. Yeah. yeah. Um I, I think one of the other Aspects to look at for like the Iranian people is Soleimani for so long was untouched when they had the Arab Spring. I think it was back in like 2011, 2012 with protests, and then now with the, the downing of this jet, it's not like Iran has been completely cut off from the news like North Korea has. Like there's definitely yeah. factions of free press that get in there and spread the word. So it's got to be embarrassing too when you know you oh, try yeah. to project a, an image of strength. But what you brought up was an interesting point. I think it might have been uh, Pete Buttigieg. And I, I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure I saw a comment where he had you know, made the connection between our politics and our decision to take out Kasim Soleimani and how that, that essentially was the cause for the Ukrainian jet to be down. Because had we not taken mm-hmm. out Soleimani, the Iranian government would never have been on such a level uh, alert, of stand yeah. to and high alert. And then someone would not have pushed the surface to air missile launch to take out a jet, which is like a really big stretch. But I think it points to a larger thing that like he and Tulsi Gabbard talk about being individuals that are running for president that have a military background is, you know, we've been there for how many years? I mean, is there is there truly is there truly any American that would ever visit that region and go, you know what, this land right here? is worth dying for. I think they would definitely go, this land right here is worth sacrificing myself for, for the individuals I'm serving with on my left and my right and the ones that will follow me to make sure that they have a peaceful transition whenever this war ends. But I've never visited Afghanistan and been like, yeah, that Kalat right there, I'm about to bound over this 50 meters just to make sure that this is standing in 40 years when my grandchildren never even ever visit this country. (laughs) well it's kind of sad like uh especially like around program like all those like mountains
0: like i I feel like afghanistan could be like a great great country like a great place like a tourist destination i feel like if they would ever get this shit under control but i mean i can already i can already
1: see it i mean like think of all the pilots you know in the the 160th and the conventional units that have been dropping off soldiers rangers and operators on these cliff sides to go and do these operations you know what they could be doing and they're probably thinking about? Like, hey, you know, in 20 years when this place cleans itself up, this is going to be the premier heli-skiing destination. And since I already know the topography, I'm about to, you know, drop off Chad and Brad and and let them take their, uh, you know, alpine skis out for a nice run down this powder. You know, get a little bit of a chalk feel on that, but that's never going to happen in Afghanistan. I mean, like, I remember walking around being like, I would love my skis here. This is beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's, like, beautiful. Like, like especially eastern and northern Afghanistan, like beautiful. And then like but I guess this kinda goes into a different discussion about the future of Afghanistan, like what are we really doing there? But then you also like bring it up with like can bring up the fact that, you know, Afghanistan has like trillions of dollars of unmined resources, natural resources that China is fully getting into there too. Uh, so, they've they've been buying
1: them, that. Like Yeah. They are not even uh, buying, just like being there. Rare earth and, minerals. Yeah. But it's the same thing that China's doing with the the one road uh, project. They want to, you know, the Silk silk Road road 2. What they've done in Pakistan, what they're doing in Africa, because they lease out these ports. They lease out these giant infrastructure plans uh, at rates that the individuals cannot pay back because they have all either been um, increased when they miss uh, payments, so you have to pay the entirety, uh, you know, in in one... um, one single payment or, or they're too aggressive for the population to afford and then they own that. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that's what they're doing in Afghanistan. They probably pitched this to yeah. somebody that, hey, you own this mountain, we're gonna resource it from you. If you fail to make a payment, there will be a, a penalty clause that we throw in this contract where either you have to pay us the, you know, the maturity of this loan value, uh, or we are going to actually uh, possess this land as the, you know, people of China. And it's no longer now part of Afghanistan. I mean, that's that's yeah. what they've been doing all over Africa already. It's this U.S. is behind.
0: Yeah. And it's also kind of interesting, too, like uh, kind of the military and security aspect of it. So I'm reading something about like Chinese PMCs are now becoming like very, very, or getting better. And that there's like some I, I don't know like how where I read this or like where I, I learned about this, but um, how like China's using their positions in like Afghanistan and Africa as ways of using of developing their own like TTPs for the army and like developing like combat, like experience in their in the military, which is kind of fucking scary if you think about it because you know if if this like China's China's military has never really been in the full like war and that's kind of like what. America has as an advantage against all the other like you know, against like North Korea, China and like Russia's that we've been fighting for, you know, years now when we have a lot of combat experience. But all these other places like like Russia has has a decent amount of combat experience with like the Ukraine and all this other stuff. But like, China hasn't really like fought anybody ever, really, since like you know, since like the communist revolution, nineteen forties.
1: Oh, and speaking of China, uh, have you seen World War Two in color, like key moments on Netflix? Oh
0: yeah, that's a great Netflix show. I fucking love that show.
1: Oh my god, I I love the one where it talked about dropping uh, the A and the H bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, the conversations that individuals had following, you know, the declaration of war by the Japanese with Pearl Harbor, uh, to you know what the landing would have looked like to make D-Day look like, you know, a walk in the park getting on yeah. to, to mainland Japan. And just like the decision-making that went into that. But then, you know, get, getting back to the Chinese, you know, uh, how many individuals they estimate were killed by the Japanese for Doolittle's raids when he landed and his forces landed in uh, mm-hmm. occupied China. Yeah. And then all the fighting, you know, in Manchuria and just, you know, the the absolute brutality of the Japanese against the Chinese. And then all of a sudden they have... The civil war uh writing right after as uh you know mao was hiding up in the mountains during during that before he was what he would have been wiped out had the japanese not invaded in the 30s i mean it's it's unbelievable what a great series
0: yeah uh but that's kind of interesting too like i think it's like super interesting and in kind of seeing how this is going to play out especially on like the international and the, on the global scale like is china going to start challenging america um for not only, like, economic power, but military power, too, because you're seeing them, you know, extending their influence to even to Mexico now. Have you ever heard um, – I was actually listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, like, today. He had this guy on from Mexico, like, this Mexico security consultant. He talked about how China is now sponsoring, like, lithium mining in in Mexico, so, kind of, like, similar to Afghanistan and in Africa, where they're now extending their influence into, you know, North America and how they're able to like deal or like uh, negotiate with the cartels and the Mexican government to get access to these resources and then you know that's like a direct way of influencing into North America and it's kind of crazy if you think about like the broad spect- the broad picture and kind of the overall like 3D chess of the of international relations and how China's really masterfully playing this 3D long game and that's kind of like the Chinese uh like practice is it's it's not like a five year ten year plan it's like a 50 to 100 year plan of of you know future looking in the future it's crazy
1: no it's what they're they're planning for because as a population they still understand the idea that what the their generation contributes uh will be like sustaining their future generations, and I think we are way too near objective focused as a population. It's Mm -hmm. someone in a, might have been a podcast or a TV series was talking about the pyramids and uh, going and seeing all of these gigantic pyramids in Egypt and these tomb structures, and knowing that the time that it took to make one of these pyramids was much longer than the average lifespan of even a pharaoh who would have use the pyramid and this individual was like standing on the cliffside and looking over this great valley and said you know i don't think americans in general at this point in society's history would be able to have the patience to wait for something so great to be constructed dude like america's
0: history we, we haven't been around for like 250 years yet
1: no and so the idea that what we're doing now you know is going to be beneficial for individuals 50 years from now i think americans are a little bit too selfish uh to, to again have that and exhibit that patience
0: well if you think well that's like a another cool topic you bring up and like kind of a kind of what contributes to that like in america like the, the way the political system is set up is f- what four-year election so you have four years to to get your shit you know implement your shit whereas if you look in china which has been around since like what 2000 bc with the emperor since 2000 bc They've had, like, millennia of history where they understand that, like, you know, they've had leaders that serve their entire life, like monarchies and emperors and shit, so that plays into the kind of, like, their, their like, cultural zeitgeist or cultural understanding of, like, like influences of, you know, about the long term, whereas in America there's been no, like, you know, sustaining long-term presence. You can think about even, like, with England and the UK, like, having the the monarchy, even though they're not really... It's more of like a figurehead now, but they have that in their in that history and that and their cultural, like a uh, cultural understanding that there is it's a long game and that doing like a short term like achieving something in the short term doesn't necessarily translate into something long term.
1: Yeah, and I think though what you're also forgetting there, uh, Bobby, is uh, I still haven't seen any thank you. From China to Matt Damon or Pedro Pascal, because we talk about the Chinese history, it would have been wiped out by those alien dinosaurs if not for them uh, defending the Great Wall. Oh um, yeah, great movie. So I, I think that's something that again, we as Americans, we really have to look back and go, hey, you know, maybe we did. We are actually the founders of China, which I think that's a good way to look at it, right? Like Matt yeah. Damon, like it's <laughs> kind of the kind of the white savior. That's all I'm saying, like. Thank, thank God for Matt Damon and Pedro Pascal.
0: Yeah, and for those that don't know what we're talking about, there was the movie The Great Wall, which is from a couple years ago. That, Yeah, that's what, that's what Sean's referencing. There were uh, dinosaurs, yeah.
1: see? And they were controlled by these mother dinosaurs, and they would attack the Great Wall, and then they burrowed underneath the wall in a faint and uh, got all the way to the capital city and the Imperial Palace, But then Matt Damon figured out how to fly a balloon uh, and he took out the, the mother, the motherboard, the mothership. Yeah. Uh,
0: What do you think that uh, is lacking in like American education, the American education system? Like I feel like I'm pretty well read in terms of like history, but I still recognize the fact that like, I don't know that much when it comes to like a lot of history. And like, I just can look back and like, remember like, in a high school, reading, like, a people's history of the United States and, like, thinking... And, and, like, at the time, I didn't really understand why I was reading this stuff, but, like, looking back on it now that I'm, like, almost 30 years old, looking back on, like, my education and seeing, like, you know, these little bits and snippets of things that I learned at certain points of time, how it's, like, directly influenced and changed kind of my perspective on things. Like, I took a Chinese history class at West Point my, my sophomore year, and that, like, definitely opened my eyes to, like, a lot of different things about kind of history and then, like, taking, like, history classes, like, learning about, you know, the, the thousands of years before, like, us that, you know, kind of, oh, like, why is my perspective? But do you think that, you know, it's American, like, educational system that fa- that's failing us or, like, lack of education? Or I don't know what it is that you think that's, th- like,
1: contributing to? I think it's that, and I don't want to be one of those people that's going to be, like, this is a PC culture that's ruining... America mm-hmm. because there's definitely some benefits to curbing our language to make America more inclusive. Yeah. But I would say on a from a history perspective, in 4th grade my history class was based on geography and the history of Virginia, which mm-hmm. you know, thankfully yeah, well, uh, has a yeah, very so... has a long history that you can go back and study. But if you're in, you know, Utah, that that's going to be a much uh, more abridged version of that, that year-long course. I think getting rid of some of the state history would probably help if we focused on the national stuff. But on that PC thing, I think the competitiveness, it, it's it's gone. While it's competitive to get into schools and it's competitive to get good grades, I think that individuals don't retain that information because they kind of just memory dump for every single test. They know that they have yeah. to memorize this to get to this. I think Germany... And, and a lot of people dislike Europe because it's more socialist. But Germany has a, a great educational system. Uh, they've got uh, gymnasium, Hochschule, and Realschule, and it breaks it down essentially. Once you get to about ninth grade, kind of what your course and what your trajectory is going to be. Not to say that you can't change it, but you're either going to be someone who is going to be a master of their trade. You're going to be someone who's going to be like a, a mid-level. Um, you know, businessman. are you going to be someone that's going to go into the STEM fields and uh, make an impact when you go to university? And so that's the difference that, you know, they identify that we can't have everyone be a rocket star because it's going to be impossible. But we also have to be realistic. And not everyone is a special butterfly. And because we're in a society where everyone gets trophies, where we get rid of dodgeball from schools because it's hyper-competitive and it makes people that are unathletic feel less than, or we want to get rid of discussions like Julianne Michaels just had uh, last week on I think it was a Good Morning America where she called out Lizzo for having great music but the host brought up her weight and said why are we talking about this like would we celebrate her if she got diabetes the fact that we can't have honest conversations that yet yes Mm -hmm. being overweight is troubling from a health perspective and from a national health crisis um, to yeah not everyone should get an award for for being um you know, just present during a sporting event to, you know, we have the conversation for the last couple of years and the role of, of women in the military has changed dramatically or the environment in the military from the nineties to the early two thousands to the tens and now the twenties is going to be significantly different based on the wars that we're fighting and the veterans that we have in senior positions. And, and so kind of making a long story shorter, if America is more comfortable with maybe being like slightly offended in some way, shape, or form. That being okay, you're not a rocket star, you're not special. Like you need to accept where you are and, and try to be the best that you can at that position. Mm-hmm. Like that—that's something that Americans have now lost um, because people don't want to take certain jobs anymore. Or you know, we have again the privilege to go to schools, and there's nothing wrong with majoring in theater. Absolutely not. If you want to make your career, uh, you know that in theater, and you want to go to like a top theater school, which I, I don't even know what they are, but say you want to go to like NYU, you're mm-hmm. probably going to be paying fifty some thousand dollars a year. We'll do the cost benefit analysis. If that's what you need to go be a Broadway star, okay. But are you going to be making fifty k a year? Maybe, maybe not. Are you going to be like an A list celebrity? like leave there and be a Bradley Cooper, probably like even less than, you know, 0.1%. So being honest with yourself and going, just because I want something doesn't mean you should be paid for it. Doesn't mean you should have that career in it. You need to people need to be honest with themselves. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about, you know, like my grades for the first semester with law school. If people can't be honest with their shortcomings and acknowledge that they have some failures or improvements to make then nobody's ever going to be better right i think that's also like or go ahead no you go
0: ahead i was gonna say i think that's part of like kind of like the american culture too because um like if you look at like japanese culture or like other countries like it's like you're not looked down upon for being very good at your job like if you're like in japan especially like the you know the idea of like a craftsman who takes like who does one thing but he does one thing like perfectly or, like beautifully like, the, like like knife makers like people that are like you know like kind of like hard laborers who don't really have an education but they like spend their entire lives dedicated to getting amazed, becoming like an expert in their field or an expert in one like act of doing something but in america i don't think a lot of people really appreciate that and like don't, aren't willing to put in like the the effort, the time, the fucking, like, blood, sweat, and tears to become really good at something, everyone kind of, like, like you were saying with the participation trophies, like, everyone just expects to be paid or be compensated well for doing something that they're not really good at, and I think that, you know, that's kind of, like, a lie that, you know, people will tell you, it's like, oh, you can do anything you want, sweetie, just, but, you know, you can do whatever you want, just go get, just go do it, except the fact they don't tell you that, you know, become good at anything. You have to put in the the time, the effort, the blood, the sweat, the tears, like the, the countless hours of, of agonizing over your, your efforts and the self, like self doubt and all the other challenges that you face. No one ever tells you that it's hard to be good at something. It's hard to be like an expert.
1: I think it's hard to, to be an expert. Then it's also hard to be really genuine about it too. Once you either have some success. Uh, I remember, I mean, Jesus, we're coming up on three years for Cronus Fit this summer, but when mm-hmm. we first started this thing, like there were, there was such a small population that we could even have any influence over or uh, discussions with, and it takes like it took a really long time for us to establish like what Cronus Fit was about, and then once we realized what Cronus could be, even making those changes were were difficult because there had to be a lot of work put in it's like okay like we could just be another company that sells fitness programs okay but then what is our mission though okay well if it's going to be establishing uh, a scholarship then we had to start looking into how do we do that how do we get the scholarship up and you know so long as we were helping somebody like that was that was the validation for the company and that's like okay now we're continuing but you know you see a lot of people that want to start something and because, again, because kind of the Instagram culture, not to rip on Instagram, because it's one of the things that has kept Kronis Fit going for a long time. Right. But if you don't have tens of thousands of followers right off the bat, then it's like, okay, what are we doing? We don't have this reach. We're not using technology effectively. Or you just kind of f- get this defeatist attitude and want to quit. Like, it takes right. a lot. Whatever your passion is, it's and it's going to take a lot of personal investment uh, financially and uh, with your time and if you don't if you're not willing to do that then like when it fails you didn't put forth you know your best efforts and if you didn't put forth yeah. your best efforts you can't be upset when the chips don't fall your way exactly yeah and like it took us well like probably a year and a
0: half to get like i, th- I would say like a year and uh, like at least a year just like pick up to be on to like to become something and like i can only imagine like if we d- didn't you know keep at it like we would have like given up a long time ago when it wasn't yeah, like
1: for, going as great and for individuals out there that if like if, if your passion is fitness and you look at cronus fit like we looked at some of the other fitness companies that were out there and like we can do it better if you think you can do it better like go ahead and do it, but some of the stuff that we had to think about when we were starting was what was our target audience gonna be? You know, like your basic marketing strategy. Um, Come up with a business plan. Like, we've never released our business plan because it was just for me and Bobby to look at and go, okay, yeah, we are putting in the right things. Like, I I have a background. with, with business development and economics. So that was something that like, OK, I'm going to take my undergrad degree and put it towards something. But then you got to go and, and make connections with individuals that are in the industry. Do we want to have uh, PhD partners? Do we, do we want to go after that first uh, time company that reaches out to us and wants to you know, have us market for them? I mean, how many t-shirt companies that you know, had stuff like, you know, I am a lion, follow me kind of stuff? Do we get you know, emails from them? or like, this is not our brand? I don't know, like, how much you would financially provide for us, but I'm not, like, I'm not a bank spokesman, uh, you know, or a personality on Instagram um, that's, you know, trying to, you know, cash in on that kind of thing. So it takes a long time to start up even the small things and getting the website going and then, hell, the taxes and and trying to go through the IRS and get, you know, for us, the the nonprofit side uh, established. I mean, I it would be a pain to be a for-profit company to try to figure out exactly how much uh, from donations and revenue we would be giving. And it's way easier for us, again, because of our mission uh, to be a nonprofit. But I mean, all these mm-hmm. decisions you have to think about. and It's not something that we had the answers to day one back in May of 2017.
0: Yeah. It's just like, like I said, like the, the blood, sweat, and tears, and like the countless hours of Getting better, and people ask me like ask us all the time about like how we got so good at you know quote unquote good at like programming or like doing what we do. And it's just like honestly, just time and doing it over years and just building up your skills over years. Like nothing, like no one's gonna be a master the first time they try it, or no one's gonna be good at anything the first time they try it. You have to like put in the time of constantly refining and and building upon prior successes or failures to to, to truly really. Um, to 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 manage your craft to perfect your craft.
1: Yeah, well, who's the who's the dude that runs that? uh, Nick. uh, He's got a YouTube thing. He's huge. He does protein now. He's got like a pretty cool YouTube series where he did like an Iron Man. Oh, he did like Nick Bear. Yeah, Nick Bear. I mean, like he had one video that he talked about how his company was started, and then he kind of thought about like opening up a gym outside of Fort Hood in Austin, and then he went to the protein thing and. Uh. How like when they first got like their first million dollar like single revenue stream for the year like that was a huge thing or like their first yeah. couple thousand dollars they sold him and he's been doing this since he was a, a platoon leader at Fort yes. Hood and doing this yeah. as like a side hustle. Now this is his lifestyle. This is his brand. Life, this is yeah. his business. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that it, it takes, and the populations for fitness and for health are only going to get larger as populations increase. And probably healthcare at some point is going to subsidize the fitness industry rather than prescribe medication. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. going to be an awesome day when the doctor's like, hey, I'm going to prescribe you six months of uh, this CrossFit subscription at a box of your choosing. I mean, like the the American people are only going to be healthier for that kind of thing. So that's that's the direction that we see it going. But again, knowing who you want to partner up with and knowing who you want to start with, it takes a lot of investment time wise and then knowledge. And Bobby brought up uh, fitness programming like I fortunately had a running background. So when I was preparing for Ranger School, uh, RASP, you know, like I knew exactly what I needed to do for my running. I knew how to tail that for the distances. Well, Bobby, uh, you know, strength team, um, has been doing functional fitness and, and doing like, the CrossFit regional stuff for a long time. Like, so you, just, you find out what you're, you're better at and you're good at. And if you don't test your stuff either, then like, I'm not going to tell you guys to go out and do a 10 or 20 mile ruck if I've never done it myself like right. you gotta you gotta test your program I mean that, and that's the big thing after a couple of years of doing this you know what you you would benefit from and if you're the test subject and you know what the general test subject is for these schools that you had success at like, build something off of it right
0: like not to say yeah for sure but I think people like you only see the final product and people I think that you know either encourages or discourages people because you only see the final product like you see us as like see Cronus Fit as it's like this big like thing but you didn't see when we started like the kind of the difficulties in getting it up and running especially like I mean, like like, for, like nick bear like talk about nick bear like you see him now where he's like a huge like he run, has like a multi-million dollar company now but you didn't see him you know eight years ago when he started like making supplements in his fucking living room you know so you only see the final product you don't really see the growth or like the the steps along the way have you ever read uh, the, the book Shoe Dog by uh about Nike?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Phil Knight and, and how he started yeah. you know, designing the waffle, and yeah, it's, it's like, awesome.
0: Yeah, if, if you think like you th- look at Nike now, it's like this worldwide multi billion dollar company. But like in the night when it started in the 1970s, it started in a guy's garage, same like an Apple, like Apple started in Steve Wozniak's garage, and all you see now is this huge global multi billion, maybe trillion dollar company, but you don't see like The literal blood, sweat, and tears that was put into it in in this infancy. So I I used to run.
1: I used to run in Nikes. Um, I had the Pegasus for my like middle distance shoes. Uh, The Waffles, based on his waffle design, uh, where he literally took you know the composite material to make the soles of these shoes, and he used a waffle iron. Uh, to, to, you know, make a new grip style uh, Mm -hmm. that was better for track and better for trail. I mean, like, that's the kind of stuff that that ingenuity uh, that, you know, if you have the passion for it, you go and you do.
0: Yeah, and you can't get discouraged. Like, you have to, like, if it's something that you're passionate about and it's something that you want to do, you're going to, like, you have to understand that to be great at anything requires thousands and thousands of hours of effort and, you know not sleeping of sacrifice of of not you know of giving up on lots of other things to become good at your craft and i think we oh, talked talk- about it before yeah about like to be like a master or like to be good at anything you, requires you to sacrifice immensely in your, in your personal life and everything else in order to become good at what you want to become good at
1: i mean just look at chandler smith i mean like yeah. a couple of years ago he loses part of his finger changing out the the skirt on a tank and has a couple years of trying to make the games and then is he is he he's in first place right now right the mayhem classic
0: yeah or he secured himself
1: an invitation to the games again
0: yeah 22nd in the world in, in the crossfit open but like like you you look at guys like or like athletes like that and you think like oh like he's a fuck like he's a you know he's just Good, like he. You don't see the fucking decades and years of training it takes to get to there. Like, I remember. I'm so I. I don't Chandler. I've known Chandler for, I guess, almost a decade now. Cause I met him when I was a senior and he was a freshman at West Point, And he was. We went to a couple competitions together, and he like destroyed everybody. And I was like, this dude's like fucking. He's gifted. Like he has. He's really good at this stuff. But he's like eighteen years old. Then like you look, this was like 2011. like eleven, and like ten years later, he's like on the game on the like going to the games like nine years later. Yeah, didn't he but finish to top think, twenty like, last year? He made like the yeah, second like to top final 20. cut. Yeah, but like if you think about it, like you you look at people at their current state, but you don't see like the years, decades of hours of like sweat of like fucking destroying your body of sacrificing everything else besides like your one goals like i remember um like he was he was telling me like he like would just train like wouldn't have like, he didn't even have a social life he would just train and just work out and like he was sacrificed you could like say that he, he, had, he sacrificed a little bit in terms of his like army career to like you know but he still like did pretty good i don't know you, you just like don't see all the work that goes into it and you just, people all just automatically assume like, you know, Oh, he's just naturally gifted or he's just, you know, using steroids or whatever, like excuse that people want to use. But at the end of the day, like the difference between you and just like a, just a general you, the difference between you as, a, as an individual versus like, you know, like Michael Jordan or like any successful person is that the one, the person that's successful is the one that's, that's willing and puts in the hours the years the blood the sweat the tears the sacrifice to get to that point and then like, you can't really just attribute it to like you know like he's naturally gifted no like he may be naturally gifted yes i'm sure it, it does help some but like it d- still requires years and thousands of hours to get to that point point. and people just you know just naturally assume like oh you know i i could do that if i, if I had the time to do it it's like mm, you probably couldn't
1: no, it, not 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 in today's day or era too, where there's so many people that have already started on that trip and that journey.
0: Yeah, and it's just like I, I, I just, it really bothers me when people say like, "Oh, I could do that," and like it's no big deal.
1: Uh, it's definitely. I mean, some of the things you put in hard work, you you know, be somebody. has kind of been our motto. Yeah, yeah, hard work pays off. Um. Yeah. Uh, anything else going on? Uh no, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go and have to pack up soon, so I can catch this red eye, and uh, yeah, then I'll then I'll be back in uh, be back in the city, be back on the East Coast with you, so we'll be able to to get some more uh, workouts and uh, podcasts out, you know, together finally.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think like when I'll be able to come back up to the city. Um, I don't know. We'll talk more about like f- getting back up the city and hanging out some more um any anything you want to share with everyone before we knock before we finish out today
1: oh yeah uh if you're looking to restart something to be somebody and, and you need uh some help when we talk about recovery products uh check a, check out paragon recovery uh use the code crunus to get uh, great savings and discounts they are the sponsors of this podcast uh bobby and i have been using their products for a long time especially with the new year coming around uh big decisions are are often made around this time of year. And if you need a little extra help or you find yourself lacking when it comes to sleep or coming off of a workout and feeling fresh the next day, that that's a great supplement that, you know, we've tested, uh, and we're proud to stand behind now. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, I don't really have any pitches or anything else I want to get out there. Uh, besides, you know, we're back in business. So, Drop us a five-star review. Let us know what we can do better or what we can do or what we're doing bad, what we can get better at. Let us, let us know uh, things that we can work on because as, you know, as this kind of theme of this week's podcast is um, life is a series of constant reevaluation and getting better at things you're not good at. So uh, let us know what we need to work on. Yeah. But yeah. And I'll get my podcast out this week too. I'm going to talk about intermittent fasting. Kind of yeah, excited next, to talk about it, actually.
1: Next week's Weekly Dispatch is going to cover uh, the release of the trial documents for the Senate impeachment hearings uh, and subsequent trial and uh, what Jerry Nadler is probably going to present to Congress um, in his pitch for the the two charges that they brought against President Trump. So we'll get into a deep dive about that and then whatever else the fallout is from Iran this week.
0: Oh, yeah. Speaking of the impeachment... I have a hot take on the twenty twenty elections, real fast before before we break. My hot okay. take is that tr- Trump gets reelected, Democrats hold the House, and the Democrats take the Senate. That's my that's my hot take.
1: I mean, I, I could definitely see it because uh, Secretary of State, I don't think, is running in Kansas uh, this next year. The individual that is running. For the Republicans is a very far right individual um, and is probably seen as not someone that's going to represent the state. So I I would generally agree. I don't think the Democrats have any front runners. I think now for may, maybe uh, the mayor from New York City would have you know been a good choice if he had decided to enter the race you know more than two months ahead of the Iowa caucus. Um, but you know, Mr. Bloomberg, I think he just entered a little late. Otherwise, it would have been probably a fun debate. And I don't. I think Trump's already come out and said that he probably won't do presidential debates because he doesn't trust uh, the media to hold a fair <laughs> and balanced, to quote Fox, uh, you know, style uh, debate. Because he kind of got yeah. he got he got handed in the debates last year uh, with you know Secretary of State Clinton, and I think some of the individuals that are running, especially if you look at. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, even if Andrew Yang got mm-hmm. up there, uh, he would absolutely run circles around President Trump.
0: Yeah. And not to say that I'm like a huge like, Trump supporter, but I'm just calling as I see it. And that's my, my predictions for 2020. Oh,
1: we're very apolitical here, but from a, a non-political standpoint, I I, I would... Tend to agree with you because I don't see anyone starting a giant movement for the Democratic voters to get out, especially the individuals that came out to you know support Obama. I don't think we're going to see that large of a turnout from the younger population uh, or the older population in support of a, a Democratic presidential nominee.
0: Yeah but uh that's kind of neither here nor there we can talk about this later some other time because i got some interesting i have some interesting because i actually did like a deep dive into some into uh, what i was researching like what i thought for 2020 i was like doing a deep dive into some of the facts and a little bit of the history so we can talk about this later some other time
1: hell yeah homie
0: all right brother i will catch you later
1: yeah man you have a you have a great great day and uh a good week and uh We'll catch you guys back up here, uh, same places. No, I can't say that either. Same same podcast. How about that? Go get it. Same podcast next weekend. (laughs) Subscribe.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Leave a five-star review, subscribe, and catch us next time. Catch you guys later. Bye. Peace.